I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing China-Africa relations and the recent FOCAC summit. FOCAC is an acronym for the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. It serves as the official platform for relations between China and 53 African countries. FOCAC was established in 2000, and the first FOCAC summit was held in 2006. The recent FOCAC summit took place in September 2018 in Beijing. China has deepened its relationship with Africa in recent years, most notably through its significant investments in infrastructure. China's security ties with Africa have also been expanding, including weapons sales, training of local troops, peacekeeping activities, and the creation of China's first ever overseas military base in Djibouti. To explore the recent FOCAC summit and the trajectory of China-Africa relations, I'm joined by Chris Alden. Dr. Alden is a professor in international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and he is a senior research fellow with the South African Institute of International Affairs. His most recent co-edited book is titled China and Africa, Building Peace and Security Cooperation on the Continent. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thank you for the invite. So to start with, could you give us a brief overview of the role of FOCAC in China-Africa relations? Yeah, FOCAC, as you, as you said, has started in um, uh, 2000, and, and it serves really three functions. One is it puts on public display uh, the, the nature of the relationship, where the relationship is. It's a sort of uh, opportunity to review the past three years. It's, it runs every three years and reflect upon what has been accomplished. It also sets uh, uh, the agenda for what can be accomplished in the future. It, it uh, establishes on the part of both both sides, the Chinese and African side, project areas, programs, dip- diplomatic initiatives, and the like. Uh, as as uh, as targets for uh, achievement in the coming in the coming three year period, and uh, it also is an opportunity for leaders. There are a set of sub forums that uh, are uh, are found built around specific sectors, where leaders get together, ministers, business business people as well, and uh, they can hold discussions around more particular issues. China has. Um sought to develop its relations with Africa through this platform. Can you explain what China's foreign policy objectives are that they're trying to advance, and then how do the African countries benefit from participating? Uh, The the general um, drivers of, of China's role on the continent have been, in the first instance, the economic drivers of of um, resource and, and more recently market seeking behavior um, that's from the mid 1990s onward but that's there's an overlay that, that one has to recognize of a, a diplomatic political initiatives that uh, binding together uh, the relation uh, relationship between uh, Beijing and the respective African countries for which China believes uh, about which China believes there is a there are a lot of affinities, affinities around questions of sovereignty, affinities around questions of global governance, and that sort of thing. So, you, so FOCAC 
um, where FOCAC fits into this larger agenda, and it's an evolving one, too, I should say. New issues come up over the years and, and uh, are, are brought in on board, such as security. But, um, but uh, what, what uh, the larger um, aim here is to build a relationship that is really chi- Chinese and African in its sense. It's one which has shaped the norms that under, underlie it in FOCAC and others, uh, and other cooperative ventures reflect the shared uh, perspectives, outlooks uh, uh, of, the two, of the two parties, the region, Africa, and, and China, the country. So the recent summit, I understand that uh, virtually every African s- uh, country sent its top leader. Why are the Africans themselves so eager to engage in this process with Beijing? What do they get out of it? They get, in the first instance, they get resources and they get attention. Uh, they get resources in the sense that China has, uh, has, has um, deep pockets, financial pockets, uh, development, its, its role as a, a financier of development, infrastructure in particular, but not exclusively so, is, is obviously well known. And, and uh, they have a track record at this stage in, across Africa and building projects that, that others had uh, perhaps, that to say the international financial institutions or donors had, had been less, less um, more reluctant rather to support. So finance is part of it. On the diplomatic front, Africa has, uh, since the 1990s, the Chinese foreign ministry has made a point, with with one exception of of, of putting African diplomats first on their their um, annual their calendar. That is to say, they go, they'll uh, do a tour of of the continent or do a bilateral visit of one kind or another. Um, and I think that this attention that is paid to African countries is well noted in the capitals of the African uh, uh, countries. It, it gives them a sense of their significance, that another developing country, um, a emerging country, one with a Security Council seat, one in the, at the heights of power, as it were, in the international system, is uh, anxious to, willing to uh, reach out and, and give them uh, the kind of uh, focus uh, that uh, was, frankly, missing in, in amongst the other traditional uh, European and U.S. powers. At the recent FOCAC summit, what were, what were some of the significant outcomes, and how did it compare to the meeting that was held, say, uh, three years ago or, or six years ago? What, what really stood out to you? Um, in a sense, what, what stood out was how it felt to me that it was more of the same as of 2015. 2015 is notable because of the big bang announcements of, of um, uh, $60 billion uh, in, in various forms of finance, mostly concessional loans and, and the like, but uh, uh, some grant aid as well and different sorts of incentive, financial incentives there. This, this really uh, took, caught the attention of African leaders and, and the global community. We had a, a repetition of that, that number uh, albeit the, the the carving up of the of the distribution of, of those funds in a somewhat different way, um, uh, so in a sense it wasn't that distinctive from the previous previous FOCAC. 
what was what was distinctive is partly the emphasis of what was missing. I think there was a lot less uh, focus on um, uh, some of the some of the, uh, the AU. The African Union has something called Agenda 2063. Um, the terminology and the projects that are feature in, uh, in Agenda 63, which is a development agenda for the continent, uh, are quite detailed. And if you look at the 2015 FOCAC Action Plan, there's a lot of kind of micro detail linking uh, FOCAC and Chinese initiatives to particular interests and projects and the like. And that's, there's been a backing away from that level of detail in that between the FOCAC initiative and, and the AU's Afro Agenda 2063. There's some detail and security that was, was uh, lacking in the past. Uh, Fifty uh, projects that uh, aimed at training, technical training, uh, linked to uh, enhancing security capacity, um, intelligence sharing, uh, crime, law, a forum on looking at, at policing and crime. So, you know, the beginning to dig a little bit deeper into the, the security side of um, the equation. And, and uh, while, thing, while security has been mentioned since 2012, since the announcement of the, at that FOCAC meeting of a partnership in peace and security, um, the uh, uh, details have, have really been lacking up to this stage. You mentioned the financing component of the China-Africa relationship. Uh, could you talk a bit about the impact of uh, the Belt and Road on China-Africa relations, how it's playing on the on the continent? And I wonder how you view the statements that have been uh, made by some people in the in the Trump administration, and I think by some other governments as well, that. China's strategy towards Africa is one that encourages dependency using opaque contracts, predatory loan practices, uh, and uh, corrupt deals. Is this an accurate depiction of what is going on? On the first point of, of BRI, um, I, I suppose I should have said that's also notable about this particular FOCAC meeting is that uh, the uh, Belt Road Initiative is integrated formally into um, uh, the relationship between Africa and China. So that, that stands out as, as a, a further elaboration of, of what, uh, an evolution of what constitutes the Belt Road from a very narrow historical uh, linkage to one that's beginning to t expand to, to global proportions across m most of the developing world. So I think that that should be noted as distinctive. Um, the the meaning of, of that for of the Belt Road Initiative, I think there's been a fair amount of uh, since its announcement in 2013, and subsequently since Chinese researchers, diplomats, and the like have been. Uh, coming to, to the continent and, and speaking about this Belt Road initiative, there's been a fair amount of, if not confusion, just, just uh, uh, amusement, not, not really certain what the Belt Road initiative has to do with African interests and, and the like. So it's been a, a process of, of building that, um, of learning about it and recognizing that, at least in the infrastructure side of things, and certainly on the East Coast and the Horn of Africa, that Belt, the Belt Road initiative uh, has has a formal fit into the into what used to be called the maritime Silk Road or maritime component of it, um, 
And as the Chinese thinking about the Belt and Road has evolved, so too Africans have begun to see more opportunity in supporting infrastructure projects that are, or harbors and uh, ports, rather, and these sort of things that um, will uh, penetrate in, inland from the coast, the east coast of Africa or the Horn. Uh, so, the, so I think this convergence, um, beginning uh, of convergence about what the, the Belt Road can mean, um, development financing in particular, and uh, what Africa wants or needs. Uh, it should be recognized that 30, that uh, this is a study of some years back, but uh, they said that uh, um, Africa can absorb uh, uh, a huge amount of infrastructure, annual infrastructure building, that uh, it's, it's falling far short. And so Chinese... Uh, the Chinese component is is very much a, a welcome, a financing for infrastructure is very much a welcome um, initiative from their perspective. Whether it's branded as Belt Road, whether it's a FOCAC, whether it's bilateral, uh, you know, Ch- African governments see that as as a positive sum game. That being said, some of this, you know, they're also cautious about uh, some of the issues raised by the Trump administration. Uh, raised uh, even in their own or, or derived from their own experience of, of um, working with China. It's not a, you know, each, it's not a given that the particular projects and financing will produce the kind of infrastructure, the quality of infrastructure that they've, that, that they had hoped or, or wanted. So there are debates going on within African governments, certainly among civil society and business communities saying, are we getting the infrastructure we want when we approach the Chinese? What are the costs of that? Um, this debate that, that, that's coming out of Washington um, is also a kind of significant sideline of uh, a sort of critical narrative of the Chinese role in development finance in, in uh, Africa. Um, that uh, by taking loans, uh, Africans will... Um, uh, be carrying a debt burden eventually, uh, loans from China that will uh, the debt burden will eventually make it impossible uh, for that, or they'll be they'll be drawn back into the trap which they only newly emerged out of in in the late 90s, early 2000s of uh, you know high interest payments, all their all their revenue, government revenues directed towards just paying off the interest on on uh, uh, loans. So this this echoes strongly in African circles. This concern is very, very, um, they're paying attention to it. The only caveat I would uh, suggest is that they don't see this as exclusively a problem of dealing with China. It's about borrowing more generally, whether the origins happen to be China or it's done from another source, another bilateral or perhaps a um, an international financial institution. So they're conscious of this in a general way, and that the, the debt burdens that they do have are um, uh, that China, the Chinese-owned debt is only a portion of that. It's going to be part of a larger debt portfolio that governments have. You write in your uh in your recent book about the security cooperation between uh, China and Africa, really about the security elements of the relationship. And I wonder if you could elaborate on why security has become important in the China-Africa relationship and 
where do you see these headed in in the future? Security is interesting. The, the uh, sector when when China first uh, really became involved in Africa, so I should say first when this newest phase or this intensified phase uh, from the from the mid 1990s onward uh, began. Um, the question of security was one which was studiously avoided. The, the Chinese flew the flag, as, 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 they, as they do, of uh, non-intervention and, and uh, non-interference. Um, and they really had no capacity, for that matter, to do anything in the security sphere. They were just beginning to roll out a few tentative um, uh, movements in peacekeeping, Non, non, uh, you know, engineering brigades or, or small groups of, of people in, in very particular, specialized, non-combatant roles. So that was beginning to happen, and happening in places like Africa. Um, but, but uh, as far as what they could deliver and, and their assessment of security, they really thought that things they, they they operated as if one there wasn't a security issue, and secondly, they would they had no substantive role in it. Their, their view on that uh, changed. It changed partly because once you have sunk uh, um, economic interests and with that human personnel, Chinese citizens, Chinese companies, in a, a given country, uh, one which may or may not be as stable as you believe it to be, may or, uh, you, know, you begin to become exposed to the various risks that more longstanding Foreign uh, foreigners, foreign companies recognize. So I think that this this uh, gradual process of of becoming exposed to becoming more involved, uh, the the threats of economic nationalism, which periodically emerge, particularly resource nationalism, as as uh, uh, promoted by different African governments and, for that matter, governments in Latin America and elsewhere. This this also became. Uh, an issue for in, in certain countries. So hostage taking uh, of some, some Chinese nationals, all these sorts of things began to, to build a, a, a crescendo of uh, within circles in, in Chinese circles in Africa and eventually circles in Beijing that they had to do something more uh, about this. Um, that the, the culmination of this thinking or the tipping point of this thinking came comes in uh, 2011 with the uh, NATO bomb with the Arab up- uprising and, and in particular in, um, the collapse of Libya and the NATO bombing where the Chinese have to evacuate uh, over 35,000 citizens they didn't they didn't even know they had that number there 2004 I've seen research which suggests that before 2004 there were only about a hundred Chinese in, in, in Libya itself so things changed fairly rapidly and they were exposed to uh, to the dangers of, of not just loss of business but loss of life, and exposed at home uh, to criticism for not doing what nationalist-oriented governments ought to do, which is preserve and protect their citizenry and their economic, commercial interests. So, so all of these things, I think, are part of the the reason that China has had to rethink its relationship with security. I mentioned before that 2012 is when we first see a, a formal, formal commitment at the FOCAC of that year to a, a China-Africa Partnership for Peace and Security. And that's a direct relationship to this 
change in thinking from before the period. I, I need to mention one other thing that also factors in, which is, um, which is China's um, role in Sudan. Sudan was a, a, has been a unique case in the sense that uh, it, it had a lot. China was one of its largest overseas investments had been in Sudan from the late 1990s and uh, onward. And uh, at one stage, in fact, eight, nine percent of its uh, uh, oil imported from abroad came from the Sudanese sources. Um, it was in Sudan in the build-up to the, that, that China discovered its international reputation was endangered by the behavior of the government, the Sudanese government, that it was guilty, if you like, by association, whether it wanted to be associated with, whether it, uh, you know, flew the flag of non-interference, we don't, do, we don't interfere thing, it didn't matter that it felt that way. Other African governments, Western governments, were critical of Beijing for that association. So in that context, um, China realized that it had to be more, um, uh, more forward acting uh, and begin to reflect more, uh, reflect some of the changes about questions of, of uh, intervention. Multi, it can happen, it can be multilateral, requires consensus. Uh, perhaps by regional or sub-regional organizations. But there was a, a, a sort of revolution of thinking that uh, changed, also helped China rethink some of its uh, understandings of risk and security in the African context. There's been a lot of attention paid to uh, what has now emerged as uh, a military base uh, in Djibouti. Uh, of course, China is not the only nation to have a military base there. Uh, the United States does. Uh, the, the, I think France uh, and, uh, and the Japanese have some presence. What, what purpose does the base in Djibouti serve for China? And do you think that the Chinese have an interest in establishing additional military bases on the continent? Well, the, the um base in Djibouti is long in the making. That's the first thing I should say, is that ever since China in December 2008 joined the uh, anti-piracy maritime initiatives, multilateralist maritime initiatives, um, there had been something that the Navy had been uh, public, unusually publicly saying that they, they wanted a, or felt they needed a base, and so, you know, for uh, resupply, rest and replenishment, all those sorts of things. So that that, that argument had been um, at play for some time and discussions and had been held apparently between Djibouti and other places and, and uh, Beijing for some time. Um, so that, that component of the argument, I think, is recognized by, um, as both longstanding and quite a valid one. Um, the uh, other functions, so, so this also relates to a great trading nation, China, of course, is, is a, a global trading nation par excellence, and it, it, uh, in that position it needs to protect and preserve the, the sea lanes and open communication and all, all of that kind of thing. It's uh, in the context of the Suez Canal and, and the piracy off of the Horn. Um, it's got a stake in making sure that this, uh, these sea lanes are open, and, and uh, it's, uh, th this is one way of achieving that. Um, there, there are also 
linking back to the comments I made a moment ago about the, the security of, of uh, Chinese interests, the concern for Chinese citizens uh, abroad who might get caught up in, in instability or, or, or various um, civil conflicts or what have you, uh, the basing of, of some Chinese uh, rapid reaction force. I've seen different figures on this, 4,000. Some have said, suggested it's uh, double that number. But that by basing them in Djibouti, that this is a very, uh, uh, for the same reason the U.S. and the French have based their, their equivalent forces there, that it's a very good posting area for, um, from which to respond to North Africa, the Horn, or just across the water in places like Yemen um, and, and uh, Saudi Arabia and Gulf and what have you. So I think it has, it ha it's, it's strategic in that particular sense and can meaningfully, as uh, demonstrated, that it can meaningfully help uh, China um, uh, extract as necessary citizens and others or contribute to that sort of, uh, those missions where they need to happen. Or are they looking for other bases? This is rumors abound. Uh, that uh, the west coast of Africa, there's a search for that, for, for bases and, uh, around the Gulf of Guinea, uh, southern Africa. Um, so we have some anecdotal evidence that that's occurring. Certainly the movement of, Chi of the Chinese Navy is suggestive and the anti-piracy, bilateral anti-piracy um, campaigns in the Gulf of Guinea where, again, oil is sourced from that area and there's, there are concerns. Uh, for, for the for the uh, Chinese as as with others, um, there are also arranged. There are also these, just as in Djibouti, just as in other parts of of the world, in Pakistan and Sri Lanka and these places, you do have um, big uh, uh, an alignment of um, basing the, the establishment of commercial harbor and and. Some discussions, if not actual implementation of, of basing, sorts of, of military basing arrangements or dual purpose, dual usage arrangements. And there have been discussions about whether Bagamoyo in um, Tanzania is one of those supposed to be uh, 10, uh, I think at $10 billion. It's a project that uh, uh, would certainly suggest uh, a complex development oriented and with a naval, something that could, could have a naval presence as well. As you noted, the China-Africa relationship uh, has evolved. So finally, if I could ask, if you look into your crystal ball, what, what changes do you foresee in the relationship uh, in, in the coming years, perhaps out to the next decade? Uh, crystal ball glazing, always a difficult one. But... Uh, I think that um, based on the trajectory, that we're, you know, assuming things don't, there isn't a kind of reverse one way or the other, um, but uh, the trajectory is one of deepening involvement, deepening economic involvement. With that, the attendant uh, security concerns we've mentioned. I think that uh, um, certain issues uh, such as um, Chinese migration will be... Um, will complicate what could be a, a strong and, and uh, um, if managed well on the part of the African side, a strong and constructive development relationship. If not managed well, if corrupted or untransparent processes occur, as, as the record has shown, we, you, you then end up with some very difficult and 
uh, non-developmental outcomes. So I think that's that feature. Um, but the migra- I, I do think that the population, um, the, the migration element changes for the ordinary Africa, African what the relationship is like. It's not just about financing and, and development at that level, but it's about um, either integration or competition on a one, in, in different uh, sectors and in small towns and, and that sort of thing. So I think the relationship will, will only become more complicated uh, built around that, that deepening. Um, security itself, I think the Chinese have yet to, they've had a great awakening perhaps with the 2011 in Libya, but they haven't had a, um, they have only begun to invest in security. And they really haven't faced the complexity the actual complexity of managing with their counterparts in Africa a real emergency, a real crisis. It will be interesting to see where that puts Beijing and Africa and how how that would impact on the relationship in the future. We've been talking with Dr. Chris Alden, who's a professor in international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you.